Welcome to Offscript, where we expose the cultural pressures that quietly squeeze us into the mold of this age by applying ancient biblical insights to present-day issues. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. This week we have a power-packed episode for you about work. We're continuing in our discussion from last week and talking about honorable work, the millennial work ethic, the Protestant work ethic, unemployment, and quite a few other important issues related to work and identity. If you enjoy what you're listening here, please subscribe to our podcast, and this way you'll get the next episode automatically each week to your smartphone or tablet, and this way you can stay up to date on future conversations related to practical Christian thinking. Here now is our discussion about work. Hello and welcome to Offscript. I'm Sean here with Rose and Dan, and we are here today talking about work again. This is part two, and last time we talked about the Christian work ethic, and today we are going to talk about honorable work and some of the what the Bible says about that and how we can live that out in our own workplaces today. But before we get to the discussion about honorable work, I wanted to mention the Protestant work ethic because it's a phrase that gets bandied about a lot when people talk about the work ethic. And in particular, there is a book that came out by Max Weber in the year 1905 called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism that I had to read for a sociology of religion class translated into English in 1930 and really made quite a splash in America. And since we're considering the Christian work ethic, or last time we did, I thought it would be helpful just to briefly mention his hypothesis and how that works. Essentially what Weber did is he looked at how the Reformation in particular affected how people thought about work. And in a medieval society, people tended to think about work in terms of staying in your place and doing what was handed down to you. And in a highly stratified society like that, everyone knows their place and they know roughly what they're supposed to do. And there isn't this incredible drive that we see later on towards capitalism where you're always trying to produce more with less resources and be more efficient and that sort of thing. One of his points is that Martin Luther came out with a doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. And the idea was that it's not just the priests that, and this would be the Catholic priests, that are responsible for honoring God with what they do, but it's everybody. We're all priests. And he started talking about work in terms of vocation or a calling, and that your job is more than just the thing you have to do on a day-in, day-out basis, but it's something that God calls you to, and therefore you should work hard in what God's called you to do. And then later on, John Calvin came out with his doctrine of sovereignty, and the idea there is that God elects people ahead of time to be saved and others to be damned, and that those who are saved will remain saved no matter what, the idea of eternal security, which 
I don't think is correct at all, by the way. But anyhow, that's what a lot of people thought at that time and still to this day. And one of the things about Calvin's system is that you could never be sure if you were one of the elect. There was no way to know for sure. So people reasoned, well, if I was one of the chosen, then it makes sense that I would work hard. And that wouldn't guarantee that I'm one of the chosen, but it would make sense if I am. And somehow that ended up getting worked backwards where people are working really hard to sort of like shore up their assurance of salvation. And essentially this produced this incredible revolution in work that happened to coincide with capitalism and that really drove the economy. And many people today would say that Max Weber's hypothesis is totally off. But at the same time, what we discussed last week was the Christian work ethic. And essentially our conclusion was because we're Christians, we should work hard and we should be honest and we should be more or less model employees. And so in, in a sense, I think there is a connection there between the Bible and working hard. Mm-hmm. I don't know the ins and outs of his hypothesis, but I thought I'd just throw this out here and see what you guys thought about it. Do you in any way associate working hard with assurance of salvation? No. We're called to work hard, keeping in mind that while you're at work, you're an ambassador for Christ. Your conduct should reflect that reality. For me, I do think about James too and the importance of having fruits that springs from your faith and that um, in James too is largely caring for people and loving people uh, who need it. All of the good things you do, whether it's in your nine to five or if it's showing love to people who, who need it, I think all this will come about as a result of salvation. But I do think you need to examine your heart. If you've in any way reversed it by trying to bring about faith by your works, I think you need to be cognizant of that and move away from it. I think the foundation has to be believing that your salvation is secure and not that it could be so easily shaken by you not working enough. Your works beyond that are an act of worship. I think that's where you need to put your focus Mm. and not in proving that your salvation is authentic. I think you need to believe that in your heart and essentially after that point, stop thinking about yourself so much in your works and instead, both in your nine to five and in loving people outside, it needs to be an act of worship towards God and then an act of genuine love for your fellow man. I totally agree. I think it's putting the cart before the horse. You should not look at your work and how hard you work as a barometer of how saved you are. Mm. But I think they are connected and I think one does flow out of the other. And that's not to say that saved people are hardworking and unbelievers aren't. Because I think many of us know non-Christians that are really hardworking people. Mm. So it's, it's not like you can reason it in that direction either. But let's move on to today's subject about honorable work why don't you tell your story, Rose? Okay. I graduated in 2010, graduated college. It was post-recession. It was a recovering market, and um, it was a very unsteady time for jobs. 
and I graduated with a 4.0 and all my professors loved me and you know thought I was so promising and would get a job right away and I had a sinking feeling deep in my gut that I was gonna go out there and, and sink. I don't know what my parents thought and they were not in any way spoiling me through all of this but I did move back home for two years and in many ways, like I felt like I was returning to my childhood and I had moments of thinking like a failure and I had no idea how long it would last too. Like every interview that I went into um, and every application I sent out, I thought this is the end, but it was two years and I sent out hundreds of applications and only interviewed maybe like at eight places um, throughout that time. So every interview was a big deal. and. I knew this was difficult, and I was cognizant that from the beginning, um, it could be a kind of a spiritual make or break in terms of my relationship with God and the characteristics that I chose to work on or just let go in that time. And I knew whether it was going to be long or short that I was going to kind of go through a fire and um, that I would need to be following God through it. In so doing, I was going to refuse to be burned by that. It was, and it was a time of refinement, and it was a big time of humility. The way my parents' house is, I was kind of like living in the kitchen and sleeping in the living room, and I did it. And, uh, you know, with my degree, it was nowhere I had pictured myself being, but it was the cup God had kind of given me in that time, and I was going to drink it the best I could. So during that time, first well, of just all... Just one sec. So what was your degree in? Oh, yeah, graphic design. My degree was in graphic design, and there were lots of little areas uh, to use it and to build up my resume, and none of them were very glamorous, and none of them got me a lot of money. But I said yes to everything. During this time, uh, my biggest project was typesetting a 500-page textbook on Bible translation for missionaries by a guy who had been to Papua New Guinea and had developed his alphabet, done all of that. So it was a huge opportunity for ministry and to use my skills in a way in which I never thought I would. I also, during this time, worked on my relationship with my family, all my brothers and sisters. My prayer life took off like never before. I started running and focused on fitness. Um, I worked on musicianship, but also uh, I went back to my college, my summer job during college, and worked with a lot of people who planned to never even go to college, and it was an opportunity to see myself as a peer. Where I come from, which is up in the Adirondacks, having a degree is a big deal, and coming back with a degree, unable to find a job, there's kind of a sense of like, what's wrong with you? You, you know, you're one of the privileged uh, to go out and get a degree your back. Um, and through all that, I needed not to think any highly of myself than I needed to, but also come across as a strong believer who was not giving up um, because I was back, but going through life humbly and, uh, and not afraid to work hard and not too proud to work hard. <coughs> so throughout all of this, it was a time of opening myself up um, to God. And after two years, eventually I did get um, the job I wanted um, and it was phenomenal and God blessed me. And I don't think through all of this that I earned this job. I think uh, when I got it, it was a gift from God. Mm. And I'm very grateful for it, but I need to never sit on my laurels and even think that it was because of the transformation that I underwent through that time, that, that I transformed enough or that I surrendered enough or that I hit a magic point where God granted me my wish. I don't view it that way at all, and I'm glad for the blessing when it came along. Um, but I think that God in no way owed it to me at that point. And I ran into financial difficulties a few years into my professional job and had to step back into the retail world in part-time. 
And this was, again, like an, another opportunity for great humility, being a place I didn't want to be and working extra hours and um, feeling really stretched and kind of frayed at the edges. It was another opportunity, again, um, to kind of reach out to God and, and to trust him and to acknowledge that I did not have everything under control. I was working the best I could, trying to be responsible and a good steward of everything. But through all of that, um, even though it was work that I didn't want to be doing and I was even a little bit embarrassed about, um, it was something that I wanted to do and treat it in the same way that I would treat my career and the work I wanted to be doing. Because in the end, I was, as with everything in my life, trying to be cognizant of the fact that I was not supposed to be doing this for my own gratification. And even though it needed, I needed it for my finances, but ultimately it needed to be done for the glory of God. And I needed to work just as hard and respect my coworkers there um, and my boss there just as much as I would on a job where I was trying to climb the ladder. So again, it was an opportunity to kind of take myself out of it as much as possible and focus on God. How can I serve you um, in all the places that you put me? I found myself in a somewhat similar position. I also graduated in 2010 with a journalism degree and the job market wasn't great. Uh, I too moved back to my parents for a couple of years. I had actually managed to find a job about three months after I graduated. So I was, and that, you know, I've definitely seen God. You know, I got a job out of college that I completely was not qualified for. It was for editing two news weeklies in New Jersey and I was just out of college and I didn't know how to be an editor. But the people that I worked with, the people that were also editors at this company that I wound up working for for five years, actually, uh, they taught me so much and they taught me more in, you know, two and a half years of working with them than I learned in my whole college career. And, and like I said, I've just seen God in my career throughout it, opening doors that should not have been opened, you know. Well, thank you both for sharing your stories a little bit. It's helpful to hear from you millennials a little bit. <laughs> Speaking of which, I had listened to this podcast called American Mythology by a guy named Greg Carlock. And in episode eight, which was titled The Protestant Work Ethic, he said the following, the American education system began undermining it, abandoning 150 years of curriculum that edified the nation's youth and our shared American values. Pedagogy now offered pupil-specific instruction that encourages a self-belief that each of us is special. Today, this has bred the millennial generation, who are criticized for our lack of inspired work ethic and admonished for our failure to launch into the workforce. Since I am technically Generation X myself <laughs> by a year, mm. I wonder how you guys react to that based on the stories you just told. That is not all of us. There are many of us that do work quietly and work hard, but many of us are much less vocal than our more entitled brothers and sisters and friends, and uh, those people certainly exist. Also, all of this was coupled with a very difficult time in the stock market and in jobs. Right. Please think about that. Uh, the fact that it was very difficult, even for me, you know, with a 4.0 and you know, such a quote-unquote promising future to land a job, some of us have done everything that we could and have um, really put our noses to the grindstone significantly. Um, and it's still difficult to make ends meet or to get somewhere. It's no longer the, the decade of the pension. None of us have pensions anymore. There are um, a what? <laughs> <laughs> a what? <laughs> it's a very, a very difficult situation that we face. And that's no excuse. And we need to not be entitled and we need to not complain. But I, I certainly would ask 
older generations. Um, don't overly criticize us. Please give us advice. Please show us uh, things that worked for you and things that didn't work for you. But I would ask for mentorship from older generations and not criticism only. I always get ticked off when I hear things like that because yeah. our generation didn't create the housing bubble. They didn't turn higher education into a for-profit institution. They didn't do you know any number of things that have led to a lot of societal ills in, in the current generation. I have many, many friends who work their butts off to be where they are. I don't think that that criticism holds any water. I also think it's kind of a cop-out. I think people don't like change, and when they see the world around them becoming unfamiliar, the easiest scapegoat is, you know, that old phrase, kids these days. Mm. I think it's probably that way in every generation. Right. I'm sure I'll be saying the same thing when I'm, you know, <laughs> you're totally going to be when I'm working at Walmart when I'm that, 70. Yeah. You're going to be there at 70 and you're like, these whippersnappers, yeah. all they do is sit in the basement and play those virtual reality games and their yeah. cybernetic implants. <laughs> we didn't have that. All we had was Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> we had to actually use our thumbs on those controllers. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Anyhow, that's an important part of the picture as far as honorable work goes, you know, that there is a perception out there and that perception is probably more colored by these sorts of uh, systemic issues you mentioned, Dan, rather than just like a lost generation of slackers. I mean, yes, there are slackers among the millennials. There are slackers among the Gen Xers, and there are slacker baby boomers. Yeah. Oh, I just said that. Yes, I did. <laughs> That's the way every generation is because generations are full of people, and we're not really here to criticize one generation over another. I figured I'd at least poke that bee's nest and see how you reacted a little bit and get your insight on that perception. Well, let's turn it now to discuss what sorts of jobs are appropriate for Christians. And I've outlined three main points on this, and I want to get your thoughts as well, Rose and Dan. One is, does it require you to sin? And the second one is, are you contributing to a cause that causes harm? And three, is it honest work? And so my example for the first one, does it require you to sin? Look, if you're a cameraman for a pornography company, mm -hmm. It might be a lot of honest labor, but at the same time, you're in the process of lusting, and that would be sinful. Or on point number two, are you contributing to something that causes harm? Look, if you're selling subprime mortgages, and you know it's to people that are not able to pay them off, then that is exactly what caused the housing bubble. Mm -hmm. And in one sense, you'd be like, oh, well, I'm just doing my job. Yeah, but your job has consequences, and that's part of the picture. You can't divorce the effects of your job from your physically performing them. You don't work in a vacuum. And I think this age we're in now is more and more aware of how the individual affects the group or the individual company affects the society. And so if you're a chemist and you get an order for some sort of compound and you're selling it to an agency that you know is involved in something that is wrong, 
like obviously wrong. If you're making Agent Orange, right? <laughs> then then you you need to take responsibility for that. Now, of course, there are lots of times where you don't know how what you're doing is affecting or being used. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you do know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the third point is, is it honest work? Now, I heard this expose on this Planet Money podcast where they talked about this telemarketing ring that set people up to run their own online business. And what they ended up doing was calling up usually elderly folks that didn't even have computers. Mm. And they had this incredibly fine-tuned script they followed to determine how much that person could possibly pay. And that's what they set the price as. And then they had a monthly fee as well. And they were essentially robbing people, legally robbing people of thousands. I mean, these people would give them the money to set up some business. And there's no way these people were going to actually be able to sell anything online. And eventually they got shut down. But there are, there are plenty of similar circumstances, I'm sure, that you can think of where the work is it's just not honest work. Right. Anytime you have to think to yourself and rationalize about about what you're doing and, and kind of convince yourself that it's not wrong, chances are that you need to take a good look at it and, and really see and really listen to what you think in your heart of hearts about what you're doing. Because if you're even having that conversation with yourself, that means that you needed to have that conversation with yourself. Why did you need to have it? Why did you need to convince yourself that, oh, it's just setting up a business. I'm not technically sinning. You think about work and how we should view it as an offering to God and something um, that Mm -hmm. we give to him as love. There's Mm -hmm. some sort of offerings he doesn't want. You read it in the book of Malachi. God says, I don't want it. Give it to your governor and see if he wants your inferior sacrifice. If you can't offer it to God, you need to think twice about being involved in that at all. That's a great point. I think ideally you want to have the sort of work that coheres with a Christian way of life as much as possible so that a work that in some way is good for the world sometimes that's not available sometimes it's just a neutral kind of situation but i think there is a stereotype about honorable work and then there's the christian view and i think they're not the same for example the honorable professions typically touted are doctors engineers lawyers Graphic designers. (laughs) Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Architects and these sorts of people, technologists, entrepreneurs, you know, the Zuckerbergs, the Jobs, the Gates. More and more these days, people are coming to laud the philanthropreneurs, people that are entrepreneurs, but they're starting companies with the specific goal of making the world a better place or alleviating suffering. You think of, like, for example, Tom Shoes, who... This company gives a pair of shoes to someone in need for every pair of shoes that they sell. And Elon Musk, to a large degree, is in that boat as well. I mean, he's really trying to solve what he sees as the biggest world's problems in a capitalist framework. Yeah, like going to space. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of his many uh, (laughs) ventures. Well, we'll get back to Elon Musk in just a moment. But at the same time, I want to be careful not to alienate those who are listening because I did some quick research and I came across the Bureau of Labor Statistics and what they said 
was the number one job by far in America is retail salespersons. And number two is cashiers. And number three is food preparation and serving workers. And then number four is office clerks. Number five is registered nurses. Number six is waiters and waitresses. Seven is customer service representatives, and it goes on from there. But these are the jobs that the majority of people in America actually work. And I feel like from a typical perspective, people are going to be very impressed with the technologist Mm. or the lawyer. But from a Christian perspective, and Christianity has always been involved in all different levels of the social strata, the person who is working retail can work just as well for God in that situation as the the CEO of whatever company. And I feel like there is this sense of inferiority that people Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. about good, honest labor that is really not appropriate. I I think we, we should respect people that work hard and honestly and that do it with a cheerful attitude. You know, I've worked jobs like that, and I felt that sort of inferior when when working. I mean, nobody's called to, to work at McDonald's at the same time. That's the number three most popular job in America right. food right. prep. And if it's the only job that you can get, and it's the job that helps you to provide for yourself, your family, then, then it's honorable work if you do it honorably. It doesn't matter what it is. It matters what it is. We're, we're talking about why it matters what it is, but... Yeah working as opposed to, oh, well, the only job out there is McDonald's. I'm not going to work. Like, no. Yeah. Let me run down. This is from the same source from May 2013. The mean annual wages for these largest occupations. Retail salespersons are averaging 25000 a year. Cashiers, 20000 a year. Number three, with the food preparation, is less than 20000 a year. It looks like about 18000 a year. And then the office folks are up to 30,000. However, the average across all occupations mean is 45,000, 46,000 in America. So what does that tell you? That tells you that if you just take the top four most common jobs in America, they're all making around half of the average wage in America. That's a huge statistic. And it's really hard when what you do with your time is valued by a dollar amount, not to feel like you're inferior or that you're getting the short end of the stick. And many times people are getting the short end of the stick. You know, there are massive systemic forces at work here, and we're not at all naive to that. All of us at this table have worked retail. I've worked landscaping and other jobs. That's good, clean, honest work. And on the one hand, we want to say, hey, if you can find a way to improve your situation, if that's available for you, then go for it. Because I think that totally makes sense to work smarter instead of harder. And then you have more to give, like we talked about last week, and you have more free time to serve. However, if you're not able to do that, In the eyes of God, what you're doing is beautiful if you're doing it with the right heart and in the way that we talked about, working heartily unto the Lord. Right. And if God is your sufficiency, then 
the menial aspects of your job will cease to matter. If God is number one in your life, in a certain sense, it doesn't matter how menial or, or supposedly important that job is. If you look at the early church, many of the people there were, in fact, bondservants and doing, uh, you know, not the most glamorous roles. And in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, Paul writes to them, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Paul looked at that and the obligation that they had uh, to honorable work, even as bondservants, just is important to put out a good quality of your work, no matter what uh, level of society you are at, you do it as to the Lord. And you do it to the Lord with goodwill and not to man, uh, whether bondservant or free. I want to talk now about the good jobs. I want to talk about an ideal job because Mm -hmm. I think that's important to understand what it is, you know, especially if you're not yet in the workforce, what it is you can shoot for. And I have three points on that as well. (laughs) (laughs) The, the first point I have is that ideally you would enjoy the work you do and, or the people you work with. Number two is that you will feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself when you're working. And number three is that somehow the work you do or the team you're a part of is making the world a better place. Mm. You know, that's not a specific job industry. Right. Those are things you can find fulfillment in in any different kind of industry. The first point on enjoying the work you do is really driven home by this scholar named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He wrote a book, did research and wrote a book on what he calls flow, which is where you get in a state of consciousness where your concentration is so intense that you can't pay attention to irrelevant issues or worry about other problems. And you lose track of time to such a degree that maybe you even miss meals. And that that for you is the pinnacle of enjoyment in the workplace when you're able to plug in so much that everything just stops for you i think there's a shift to this kind of thinking there's a new book out by i don't know if it's new this guy named cal newport it's called deep work rules for focused success in a distracted world uh, which sounds very sort of like self-helpy but the gist of the book looks at deep work versus shallow work so an example of shallow work would be you know clearing out email, optimizing your social media feeds for the most clicks, you know, all those little busy tasks that you do throughout your workday, but that at the end of your workday, you don't feel like you got anything done. I mean, I know I feel like that. Whereas deep work is what you were talking about, what the kind of work that you're so engaged that external influences don't penetrate through to to you. Yeah. So I think that's a good thing to shoot for working in the kind of job where you're so engaged that you really do go into this flow state of consciousness. And one of the keys Csikszentmihalyi says causes this to happen is when you have a task that balances between challenge and skill. 
Mm. If you don't have the skills to do it, you just get frustrated. And if you're not being challenged, like the email, you're not really being challenged, you're just like clearing it out, then you're bored. And only when the challenge level is high and the skill required for it is high, do you get into the state of flow. And then once you're in it, you have to continually increase your challenge as your skill increases mm-hmm. and grows. Yeah. And it's a positive feedback loop for better and better work. I think the formula for me is a little bit more challenge than I have skill. <laughs> that's uh, that's, a that's good, uh... when it really gets me in because I am driven to solve problems. If it's just a hum, you know humdrum run of the mill project, I probably won't get quite so flowy. But if it's a little bit beyond me, and if there's um, an achievable amount that I can learn through doing it, I'm totally locked in. And if you sneak up behind me, you will scare me. <laughs> <laughs> That's number one for an ideal job. Number two is you want to feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. You want to feel like you have a purpose mm-hmm. that you're contributing to a team. You're not just in a cubicle writing TPS reports all day. (laughs) That'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) You want to feel like you're contributing to what's happening around you and that you're working together with others. And then number three, once again, is that your work is somehow helping the world. Mm -hmm. And you get that a lot in the medical industry. Let's say you're working on a cancer drug. That drug could literally save people's lives. Or let's say you're a nurse and you're delivering babies all day. Uh, especially when the doctor doesn't show up on time, which happens, believe me. That's work that's making the world a better place. Or look, if you're if you're in sanitation, right? You are making the world a better place, <laughs> right? right? And uh, so I, I don't mean to just like isolate certain jobs or anything like well, yeah, that. Yeah, I mean you can you can talk about that in a broad spectrum of, of jobs. Obviously, being a doctor that or a scientist that comes up with some cancer cure is going to have more impact. But that's a very, very tiny segment of of the population that is in a position to do that kind of thing. But yeah, like you said, Sean, being garbage and being even being good to people. And if you're in a retail setting, as the Bible says, to like turn the other cheek or, or, you know, any any number of things that you find in Proverbs or, you know, in Jesus teaching about how you're supposed to not repay evil for evil. Mm -hmm. If you're in a retail job, you can certainly practice that and that is making the world a better place yeah you have something i was on the phone with the best technical support guy today he was so good and he started out by saying i was not able to resolve the issue and then he went back and told me the story of why he was not able to and how hard he worked to Mm. and he had been keeping me updated the whole time so i kind of already knew the story and I could tell he like kind of expected me to be mad afterwards. And I said, thank you so much for all the work that you went to. I know you were uh, working hard from all the updates I got in the meantime. I appreciate that so much. And I know it's not your fault. Um, and then I gave him, you know, all tens on the survey I got afterwards. Um, but I wanted to reach out to him at that point. And even though the outcome was not what I wanted, his, the way he handled the issue was everything I could have asked for. What, what do you think about salespeople? Sometimes they are the ones that get maligned for having ulterior motives. Is sales a an honest profession or an honorable profession for a Christian? What do you think? I think if you believe in the product you're selling and you present it in a ethical and truthful way as opposed to a uh, sort of manipulative or disingenuous way, then yeah. There's also some bosses you cannot work for. Because even if you would do an honest job, there are some bosses that are going to demand you to go, you know, air quotes here, but above and beyond and and push it in a more aggressive and dishonest way. 
So sales, absolutely, you could honor God in sales, but you do have to understand that there will be some places and some situations uh, where you cannot do what they're asking you and serve God. Right, like you said in this internet business scam, that they had a script and a lot of sales mechanisms have scripts and they're designed in a lot of ways to exploit I think they call it in, in that jargon or that parlance is uh, pain points. They'll talk with you, learn a little bit about you, and then they'll sort of assess where you feel inferior or where, where you feel, where they feel based on their little diagnostic test that they run you through, they can sort of get an edge on you. And then they'll use that to sell you uh, whatever product they're selling. So that sounds like manipulation. Yes, and, and then when you go there, they're scripted to identify these these perceived weaknesses and and sort of exploit them and that i think is when you start to get into a murky area you know if you're a christian am i supposed to be playing people like this in order to sell what i'm supposed to be selling and then at the same time rose like you mentioned you have your boss who's concerned about the metrics and the sales numbers every month how do you maximize those and it can i'm sure it can be tricky I worked a couple of different retail jobs, one where I was mostly just a cashier and another where I was definitely a commission sales person. And the problem that I kept finding for myself was that I would objectify people. I would look at them as dollar signs and not as people. And mm -hmm. I think if you do that, then that's something you can definitely correct and still work that job. But at the same time, it's a danger of that job. And so many people are in the business of, of retail and commission sales and things like that, that I think it's important to say that, that you want to recognize the value of each and the dignity of each human that walks in the door, whether they're a high roller or not. And I think it's smart to read people and ask questions that are relevant, but we shouldn't manipulate people. Mm. So I think there's a balance there to figure this out and if you don't believe in your product, you really shouldn't be selling it anyhow. Yeah. And if you know there's something wrong with your product, then you're in a dishonest situation where you're saying something is good and that they should buy it and you don't believe in it yourself. So I think there is definitely an interesting case to make for sales from a Christian perspective. And there are lots of sales, men and women that do it right. But at this time, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about unemployment just as we wind things down here do you think is ethical for christians is it honorable for christians to take unemployment i think that unemployment is a is a tool that people can use correctly to get out of a situation that they're in and it can be used in an honorable way uh, we live in a country that happens to have unemployment and it goes back to you know that verse that talks about how god knows the heart if you're using unemployment because you don't want to work and you'll get by on your, you know, $200 a week or whatever it is. That's a problem. That's not right. And a lot of people do that. But if you find yourself laid off and the only way to provide for your family is, is through these programs that we happen to live in this, in a country that has them, while you're doing that, you're, you're trying to get back on your feet and you're out there pounding the pavement looking for a job. Uh, Rose, like like you said, uh, bettering yourself through through fitness, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, learning different things, then yeah, it, it can be a blessing that you can take advantage of because you happen, you know, to live in this country and other countries that have these kind of social programs. On the other side of that coin, it is very much abused, I think. You know, you hear stories about people having kids because they want to get that extra money that that kid would 
uh, affords them through these programs. There's a lot of abuse of it, but it goes back to your heart, where you are in your own heart, if you're trying to get it off, off of it and, and get a full-time job, etc. I think from a Christian perspective, we have this verse in our heads, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. At least I know I do. And I can imagine a situation where I'm in unemployment and I'm getting the check from the government for that and feeling guilty Mm. because I'm not working, but I am getting paid. What you said before, I think, is a good Christian perspective on it, where if you don't have a job, your job is to go get a job. Mm. The idea of doing what's necessary to send out hundreds of applications and do what is needful and keep yourself busy. But at the same time, there is a line where if you stay on unemployment beyond when you actually can get a job or if you turn away jobs because you're now dependent or fearful that you'll lose benefits, then you can get stuck in a really unhealthy cycle and end up in depression and then you really don't feel good about yourself because we're we're made to work and work is a gift from God and work is a blessing. I'm totally with you. I think it is a an awesome safety net that we should be very thankful for. But at the same time, you don't want to get comfortable resting in the net so that you're not climbing the ladder anymore. I know that in some cases, people are on unemployment and then they get a job off the books. So they're getting this government check and they're also getting that cash payment, day labor type job. Mm. Uh, and that is also completely wrong because for every dollar, yeah, and every dollar that you're taking out of that check is, a, is you know, a dollar that somebody who might actually need it and can't work, you know, from a disability or being laid off, or whatever, you know, that's not getting it. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's an excellent point. I think being on, on unemployment maybe is kind of like sleeping on your parents' couch. Every now and then you might need to crash there, but you really want to get off it as right. soon as you can. Um, and I do think the value of uh, work has to be paramount through all of this. You want to provide for yourself primarily. Otherwise, the system is to- would be totally broken Like if everyone did it. And we do have enough people doing that that we, we are damaging the system. Um, you need to seek to provide for yourself and for other people, first of all. Um, and it should be viewed as a temporary blessing not a permanent solution. Cool. And I I think in the end as well, your identity, and this is important to keep straight, your identity is not your job. Mm. It's not what you do for money. I know that, and I do this myself, when I meet somebody, I'll say, well, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And that sort of is a question that substitutes for finding out someone's name because you're like pegging their identity based on their work not based on their name or what they're passionate about or what sort of a character they have. Mm. You, you're pegging them based on a job. And I'm not saying you can't ask people that question. My point is simply that no matter what kind of work or unemployment situation you're in, your identity is not your job. Mm-hmm. Your job might be what you do and it might be great and it might really stink, but it's still not your identity. In the end, your identity is you're a Christ follower your child of God, and that's a stable identity that doesn't change through the ups and through the downs, through the college years where you're poor, or through the time when you're at the very bottom rung of the ladder, and everyone else gets to take vacation, and you don't. And everyone else gets all the perks, and you don't. Regardless, or if you're at the top of the ladder, and you're the CEO, or 
you're the big shot. Whatever your situation is, you're a Christ follower, you're a child of God. That's who you really are in that situation. And that's how we want to be, going back to what you ended on last week, Dan. We want to be consistent regardless of what situation we find ourselves in. God calls us to have God in Christ at the center of our lives. And all of our actions flow from from that truth of and dictate how we live our lives. So you can't compartmentalize your life into social, Christian, career. It's all one. Tying into what you were saying, Sean, something that I do try to remember, what I do is not who I am. It's really uh, what Christ has done for me and now my life that I live for him, that is who I am. What I do at work uh, needs to fall under the umbrella of that. And you might be doing different things with your hands, but um, it's basically inconsequential. The, the fact that you do it with all your might and offer it up as a sacrifice to Christ, that is the pivotal point. Yeah. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening, guys. And as always, please visit reststudio.org and uh, leave us some feedback, what you think. Thank you, guys. As always, feel free to join the conversation. Uh, we love you. God bless. Hasta luego. This week, we got another review in the iTunes store by author Sand Scribbler, who gave us a five-star rating. Thank you so much. Titled, Stimulating, Inspiring, and Sometimes Convicting. It goes on. I really like the Historical Jesus series. I also look forward to each new episode of the continuing Offscript series. This podcast has earned a place on my must-listen-to list. Well, thanks so much, San Scribbler. We appreciate you taking the time to give us a review. I know it's a bit of a hassle, but it really does help out. Also, Leah Franzik dropped a very insightful comment on the Offscript episode about relativism that I'd like to read out. She writes, Relativism is veiling a deeper dilemma in our culture. I stand today knowing without my biblical upbringing and the need to seek the Bible more independently, I too would easily slip into the idea that nothing is absolute. Trust came up a couple of times in this podcast, which caught my attention. I steadfastly trust in the Lord, even when I feel myself wavering away because I am a human comprised by emotions. I am drawn back to the anchor of hope and trust like a metal anchor holds a ship from floating off into the darkness of the sea. Where in our society can people turn in order to have this kind of trust? We are products of our environment, and unless a childhood was built on trust, it can be difficult to fully grasp how faithful God is to us. And even if a child lives in a home built on trust, there will come a day in which someone or something will shatter his or her glass walls of trust. Only God can give us the kind of trust that no man can shatter. The reason relativism is so easy to slip into is because more often than not, people don't fully know what it means to trust in authority. Government lies and fails us. Parents aren't perfect. School systems favor certain kinds of students. Bosses and colleagues aren't faithful in gossip, etc. In order to feel loved, accepted, and part of something bigger or better, people will form an identity, as you have mentioned in previous posts, from how the world has scripted them. This identity is not based on firm truths that have stood the test of time as our 2,000-year-old guidelines from God has. So when it comes to comparing ideas or opinions on subjects, it is more acceptable to see life in general as relative than as anything as complete truth. 
I think deep down, many people can't even trust themselves because they have such rooted trust phobia and may not even realize it. So they see all truths as being true or possible because there can be no one answer. There can be no one true being or knowledge to anchor their trust in. It seems as if everyone is floating out at sea because they have not anchored themselves down with God's trust, so they are bumping into each other and apologizing for being in the way of their beliefs, political, religious, sexual, etc., because this is how they resolve acceptance in the sea. It's natural for us to want to be accepted, which is why relativism is a strong force in our culture. Everyone has a viewpoint, and some voices are much louder than others, and those are the voices that get followed. 1 John 4, 5 says, They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We need to be mindful of all the viewpoints we encounter and which viewpoint is the one to trust as we form our ideas and identities in this world. And Dan, I don't know why you can't boil a calf in its mother's milk. You think people would just know not to do this, but obviously some guy tried it and God had to make a point to address it. This was another great podcast. Sean, Rose, and Dan, you have brought light on some subtle issues that Christians are immersed in daily and can easily get washed away at sea with. Thank you so much, Leah. That's such a great point you make about trust. Our society is hyper-skeptical and typically even cynical when it comes to any sort of authority whatsoever because we've seen time and again how these authorities can fail us. And yet there is an authority, an ultimate authority, who has himself an impeccable track record. So we have every reason in the world to trust him. Thanks for taking the time to write this. If you would like to listen to our episode on relativism, it's Offscript Episode 8. Please go over to restitutio.org, and you'll be able to find it there, along with articles and other resources. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time as we endeavor to resist conforming to this age and be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can discern God's perfect will for our lives.